Hello and welcome to the Essence Seeker podcast. This is your host, Druva O'Shea. We are now at episode nine. The title of this episode is Premonitions in a Teepee. Now this episode is going to be a little different. I'm going to be sharing with you a dream I had, a premonition that I had at the age of 17 and how this dream unfolded in my life over a period of three or four years. As this journey unfolds, you are going to hear many interesting things about my life, my journey. I hope it meets with you well. I hope it inspires you on your own journey. And please, let me know. Let me know your thoughts on premonitions, on dreams, and on spiritual journeys in general. I was hiding out in the teepee on the Hare Krishna community farm in northern New South Wales. The police were looking for me in relation to a stolen car that I had crashed into a pole in a car park near my secret parking space in Mwollomba. I was a couple of weeks off my 18th birthday and I was notorious at that time for being a little reckless in cars. I already had had my learner's license disqualified a few months earlier while driving my V8 HX Monaro. I had lost my keys to the Monaro, so I bought a 1980s model Ford Laser for $100 from an old friend. It was unregistered and it was missing the, the right rear tail lights. When one of the tires went flat, I kept driving it until I found another wheel that kind of fit but kept falling off. Once the wheel was lost in a paddock at night, so I drove a few mates and I back into town on three wheels in the wee hours of the morning. I had one guy run along at the back of the car, pushing it until we got enough momentum. And then he jumped in, into the moving car. I could see sparks through the hole in the boot where the missing taillights were as we scraped a line into the bitumen all the way from Geller through Bray Park and into Knox Park, which is in the centre of the town, Mwollomba. I left the car on display in the middle of our small town for a week, then put the original flat tyre back on it and drove it around some more till I crashed it while trying to park with too much velocity. <laughs> I remember my poor staffy pup landing in my lap flying over from the the boot into my lap when we crashed. Two of my passengers were found by the police that night a little later and they told the police everything, way more than necessary. So that's why the police were looking for me. That's why I was hiding out on the farm in the teepee. I hadn't been living with my mum for a couple of years already. But that same night I went to my mum's to raid the fridge. As I was eating, The police knocked on her door asking if she knew where I was. My blessed mother said she didn't know where I was. When the police left, she told me to hide in the roof, climb up in the attic. I didn't take her advice though. I went straight back out to roam the streets. The next day I decided to try to stay out of town for some time till the heat cooled off. So I stayed with a close friend who still lived on the Krishna farm with his mum. Up on the ridge, his mum's house was beautiful, like a small cathedral with trees all around. His mum had bought a proper teepee for him to live in, just up the hill a bit in the bush. So I was hiding out there for a couple of weeks. 
We spent lots of time out there in general, actually. It's a beautiful place. It was in that teepee one night that I had what I now believe was an amazing premonition about the future. At the time, I had no idea what it meant, though. It was just a normal experience for me having dreams like that. The dream played out in my life over several years, and each time I would recognize something in my day life, it was like a puzzle was being pieced together. In this podcast now, I'm going to outline the dream first and then recount my life and the intervals of the dream as I recognize them. I'll have to leave out a lot of details because it will take too long to share it all. I'll try to keep it a minimum by just relaying key points that if taken out might make the presentation fall apart or not reveal its significance. So let's begin with the dream. Everything was tinged with yellow from the sunset. I was at my mum's old house on the riverbank near Kondong, having a rare dinner with her and my four younger siblings. After dinner, I walked outside onto Tweed Valley Way and hitched a ride on the back of a garbage truck. I climbed in the back with the rubbish. It was one of the ones you see driving around New York with the men hanging on the back, throwing trash in. We don't have them here in Australia. We have ones with mechanical arms that lift up and and tip the bins in, tip the rubbish in. I don't remember meeting the driver. Inside is the back of the truck were cogs and pulleys made from bones, which was weird and I never really discovered any significance from them. The truck drove me north quite far over a hill and down into a city, somewhat futuristic looking with lots of lights and overpasses and tall skyscrapers. At this point, I should say, I cannot remember every detail of the dream as it happened in 2003. So we're talking 15 years ago. I've only held the significant bits in my memory, bits that I have revisited over and over countless times. After entering the city and leaving the garbage truck that took me there, I was in Hungry Jack's, which is like Burger King if if you're in the United States. I was having a veggie burger and I was surprised to meet a girl I knew from high school there. In real life, I hadn't seen her for about two years. After this, there's a big gap missing from my memory of the dream, but I end up feeling trapped and alone down in these basements of large inner city buildings with graffiti on the walls. Unfortunately, I cannot remember now how I left the basements. To be honest, I never really thought much of the dream at first, but each time I was reminded in the years to come, it was quite amazing for me. Anyway, in the dream, I somehow escaped the city in what felt like a dark, dead end, and I ended up finishing the dream in some dorms, some dormitories with bunk beds, living near the ocean with other men and feeling pretty peaceful. Okay, so I will now cross over and recount my life after the dream and cross-reference relevant points. I had had the dream in the teepee and a week later, we couldn't help ourselves. We were in town running amok again. Somehow the police snuck up on me while talking to an old girlfriend on the footpath. They told me to come to the police station the next day for questioning with regards to the Ford laser that I crashed and the two passengers uh, snitching on me. I showed up to the station and they laid it all out. 
That's how I knew these two passengers had told the police way more than necessary to save their own butts. I denied the allegations and then the police officer told me that actually the car was stolen from Queensland, which is the next state north of us, and that they knew who I got the car from and if I didn't own up to the driving offences, the guy who I bought the car off would get charged. They were trying to scare me into owning up to it. The guy who I got the car off was a big guy and kind of scary looking, I suppose. I took a moment to consider the situation. I really didn't want to get someone else in trouble, but it didn't feel legit. So I called their bluff and said, I'm sorry, officer but I really don't know what you are talking about. The police officer said, well, we are getting the fingerprints of the car and if we find yours, you will go to jail for it. The officers at the station had my mobile phone number. They let me walk out of there and they said they would contact me. This may sound weird, but this is a small country town we are talking about here. It's a population of 7,000 people, one police station, I remember walking out of there and feeling a sense of collapsing inside, thinking, fuck, what am I doing with my life? This shit is getting real now. As I walked out of the station into Main Street of my hometown, I bumped into my stepfather. He asked how I was. I was falling to pieces in that moment. I think I said, I'm probably going to jail. I was turning 18 in a week or so, and I knew that finally I could be charged as an adult. I really was lost at that point. It was like the final nail in the coffin for my life in the town I had grown up in. I had been getting into trouble with police regularly for a few years. I couldn't see any way out of the cycle. A week earlier, I had received a letter from Centrelink, social security services, telling me I owed them $9,500 for getting paid to study, Oz study they call it, getting payments to study and not attending my classes at, at TAFE for one whole year. My world was imploding upon me. I told my mum what happened at the police station and God bless her, she got some legal advice along the lines of, if he hasn't been charged yet, get him out of that town now. So no kidding, literally the next day, mum had found me a place to live in Brisbane with some friends of her friend. I really didn't want to leave my town, but I knew I had to. Within two days of being questioned by the police, I was in the top floor of a big empty old Queenslander house in the suburb Grange in Brisbane, the big city up north. Brisbane is approximately one and a half, two hours drive north of where I live and you have to cross a mountain range to get there. The big city up north. There was a couple of older guys living downstairs and I had a room upstairs. I felt alien and alone. I was quite the rural coastal boy. I had not spent much time even on the Gold Coast, what to speak of Brisbane. It was a big deal for me and although I was broken I sensed adventure ahead. The first night, I actually cried. I was feeling like I had torn myself away from my own life, my friends, my family, and everything I knew, really. That first night, I put on Prabhupada chanting CD and found some solace. I started familiarizing with Brisbane and found myself a job pretty quickly. 
I've been working as a house painter since I was 15 years old. I saw some painters at the pub and hit them up for work. It was a can you start tomorrow type thing. I was waiting for a call from the police back in Moolambar who were apparently searching the car for fingerprints, but it never came. I still had the same phone number. I'm glad I called their bluff because they never did chase me up. After a few years, they didn't even recognize me anymore, the times that I walked past them in the street while visiting my hometown. After six months of living in Brisbane, I went for a short, quiet visit back to Moolambar and saw a few old friends. One was this friend from high school, who I mentioned earlier, who appeared in my dream at Hungry Jack's, which really wasn't significant until a week or so after returning to Brisbane. She called me saying, Hey, Wood, you're living up in Brisbane, hey? Do you have a spare room in your house? I want to move to Brisbane. And she moved in. So here I am in the big city up north, and the girl from high school is there with me. Spooky, right? I don't recall thinking too much of it at that point, other than like, yeah, of course that would happen. It wasn't until more points of the dream were revealed that I became convinced about my dream being a premonition. My friend, this girl, she took a job as an exotic dancer, and it was through her that I started meeting the who's who of Brisbane club and drug scene, the underbelly. As time progressed, I got more into that scene than anything else. I still maintained a job, working in small, family-owned supermarket fruit and veg, but eventually it wasn't even necessary because I was making drug money. I kept it casually as what I like to call my cover job. I also started studying audio engineering at SAE. I spent three years in Brisbane, with each year getting more exciting and dangerous at the same time as darker and smothering. I used to go clubbing three nights a week. I would go clubbing after work, then in the morning, walk from the club back to work just down the street. The longest I stayed awake was for four days straight. Sometimes, while in the clubs with people dancing and having a good time to the lights and music, I would sit and imagine what it would be like there if you stopped the music and turned the lights on. And would the people still want to be there? Without the added elements to aid the illusion, those clubs would just be basements with graffiti on the walls. I had wanted this life, but it got to the point where I felt trapped. My mentors were being led to madness by methamphetamines, among other things, and I was following them. One day I looked in the mirror and listened to my inner self. This is not me, and that is not where I'm heading, I heard. All through my life, ever since early years, I've been quite spiritually inclined or into the subtler aspects of life. In my later teens, especially my time away from my hometown and my old mates, I had a lot of time to ponder life and myself separate from the place that I grew up. I realized that I didn't grow much in my hometown. I couldn't. My friends and my family all knew me as one person. It's hard to change or grow under those circumstances. When life got challenging, hopeless or dangerous, I used to take solace in my spiritual education from my childhood. Sometimes I would do some mantra meditation, chanting Hare Krishna on beads, or read the first two chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. 
I always had this deep desire to really pursue a life of enlightenment. I had that desire, but all my attempts to break free from my habitual entanglement were hopeless. My habits and my attachment to my circle and lifestyle kept me prisoner. One evening, during a big argument with my friend and mentor, who I saw as an elder brother, I realized my hopeless situation. I saw heaps of crazy shit during that time. My friend was like a rock for me, but he was being eroded by a different kind of rock. Ice or methamphetamines. Frustrated, I went for a walk around the block. I chanted the Hare Krishna mantra while breathing rapidly. I didn't want to go back in my house. I felt so alien. I remember walking through the dark, quiet streets of the suburb Aspley, thinking to myself, what am I doing with my life? I'm now 21. I first ran away from home when I was 15, and I still haven't found my place in the world. I'm still running away from me. I got back to my house, but didn't want to go inside. My friend had been letting junkies stay with us, and it was all turning to shit. So I laid down in the garden, and I looked at the stars. I spoke with God and asked, what do I do? I saw that divine couple in the sky and got the message, come back to me. The next day I made plans to leave Brisbane and get closer to the temple where I grew up, New Govardhan. I remember telling my mentor I was walking away from it all and the look in his eyes was like, you can go, but I have nothing else. I could see they admired my strength to leave what I had there. My situation really was the envy of anyone who was into that lifestyle. We used to get into clubs for free because of the status we had, and I would see envy in people's eyes towards our group. They wanted to be me. A week later, my stepdad was picking me up in an old red Toyota ute. I was making my escape. I went back to Mwulambar and killed my ice habit by smoking heaps of weed and hanging out with old friends I had known since I was a young child. One of them was the one who had the teepee where I had the dream. He lived in town now though. I spent six months in Mwulambar and in this time I was piecing everything together. The big city up north, the girl from high school, the basement with graffiti on the walls, feeling trapped. It was all clicking like, holy shit, I saw all this in that dream. But what were the dorms near the ocean at the end of the dream? I wondered. SAE Byron Bay, I thought. I didn't finish my audio engineering diploma in Brisbane. I knew about Byron SAE being the best one in the world. They had dorms there that you could rent and live in, in Byron Bay. One of the most famous beaches in the world. That's it, I thought. I have to go there next. That's my calling. Over a six-month period in 2006, while back in my hometown, I was still having experiences of being fed up with material life, like seeing through the social and psychological cracks of reality. I left Brisbane with a calling for spiritual life, but falling back into my old circle of friends and all the things we enjoyed really wasn't helping me make the run I was inspired to do. I couldn't pretend anymore how ridiculous it all was. Either work, make money, and attempt to pacify the questioning mind with temporary things, or take drugs and live like a mad animal trying to escape it. I started taking LSD regularly at doof or rave parties in the forest, and I would see people around me turn into their spirit animal with a drug habit. It was quite shocking to see this. I would often leave the parties and walk up a mountain to watch the sunrise and observe nature alone. 
I couldn't stop thinking about life, the universe, consciousness. How did it all come about? What is it all about? One night in the mountains, I took DMT and experienced an ego death. That was it. That was the final piece removed. I walked outside and saw Krishna and Arjuna on a chariot as a silhouette in the stars. And I saw levels advancing above them out of the universe. The message I got was that if I am to transcend this puzzle, I must first study the Bhagavad Gita seriously. I had a flat with my good friends. Yes, the one with the teepee was with me. It was kind of nice, even though I kept having these feelings like this predictable life with no purpose was not for me. I needed a push though, and it came. Our landlord, who lived upstairs with no prior indication, he decided he didn't like us anymore and he kicked us out. He gave us till Sunday to vacate, but he got drunk one evening and came down with a few of his mates to evict us on a Wednesday night. He gave me some rent money back and said, out tonight or else. My friends and I had a discussion about whether we should call some mates over for a brawl or whether we should just leave. We decided better not to spill blood, so we did about five carloads in a Mitsubishi Magna station wagon, taking everything to my mom's house, even the fridge. If you can imagine a large fridge hanging out the back of a small station wagon in the middle of the night, yeah, that was the scene. The next day I was feeling pretty lost. What the hell, I thought things were going along well, but it keeps breaking to pieces. Then I got a phone call. It was a friend's dad. He's a builder and he's known me since I was a baby. He saw me serving prasadam or Hare Krishna food to the guests at the Hare Krishna temple a month earlier. Something I hadn't done since I was a young kid. For the first time in many, many years, I did some service at the temple. When I served him, he asked me if I wanted to do some painting work in Cairns at his sister's place. I had forgotten about it, but here he was asking if I wanted to leave the next day for Cairns, and so of course I went. It was perfect timing. I was in Cairns for two to three weeks, and I had time to think about things away from everything I knew. I started doing mantra meditation in the early morning and reading Vedic literature two hours a day in the evening. I bought some books from a well-known samosa stall in the Cairns markets. The first book I read was The Science of Self-Realization. In this time away from everything, I got the strength to make a decision. I'm going to live in a temple as a monk for some time, I said. My friend's dad was supportive of my idea. He said, if you really want to do this, don't go back to Moolabah and don't go back to Brisbane. I saved my money from the painting job I was doing in Cairns. I paid some debts and bought a plane ticket. I was remembering my dream and how I was supposed to go to SAE Byron, but I told myself, as I had before, as other checkpoints were met in the past. It was just a dream. Don't worry about it. Get on with life. The morning I was to fly out, I was meditating on the beach at the sunrise and I saw a very clearly detailed silhouette of a monk praying in the clouds. He had a seeker and had his palms clasped in front of him with his head tilted forward and downward. I saw that as a reassuring sign as I was feeling a little irrational at the time. I landed in Melbourne and moved into the temple ashram immediately. It was a shock to me. 
It was such an overwhelming change, going from directionless loops of elusive freedom to full discipline, regulation and selfless service. After a week or so, I had settled in and was sitting out the back porch next to some pot plants and just took a moment to look out at the back fence, the plants, the footpath and feeling the ambience. It felt strangely like I had been sitting in that very same spot before and then it hit me. This is it. The dorms, the bunk beds, the all men ashram. But where was the ocean? I saw an ocean in my dream. I was looking forward to surfing in Byron Bay, but I recalled that actually I never saw surf waves in my dream. I just saw ocean and surmised that there would be waves to surf. And guess what? The ashram was in Albert Park, about two blocks from Port Phillip Bay, the bay which I would walk to to meditate on many occasions over the following years. The bay with no waves. I understand that this all could be just associations made in my brain in hindsight. We all do it. We are pattern finders. One could argue it is some kind of evolutionary survival mechanism and hey, you might be right, but you might be wrong also. And hey, if you are going to live out a story, which we all are, you can't help that, it might as well be a good one, isn't it? I suggest reading up on some Carl Jung if you're having trouble accepting the significance of dreams. Personally, I believe dreams have great significance, great power, great insight, in that it's your subconscious mind processing information from inside and outside of you. There's also some kind of aspect of transcending time. And why not? If there is a universal intelligence, why can't you access bits of information from that intelligence? when your mind is quiet while you are sleeping. If you quieten your life enough to take note of them, these messages, these signals, these intuitions, you can access incredible information and deal with deep parts of your psyche there. You can orient yourself towards the world in the way that's going to give you the most fulfillment because in this way you are deeply connected with the root of your being. I have been completely sober and dedicated to positive developments for 10 years now. Although I do get a little drunk on knowledge sometimes. I do get a little drunk on meditation and contemplation about life and about these great, deep, profound experiences. I have had other premonition dreams also, but I will save that for a part two maybe. For now, my fellow psychonauts, Godspeed. Okay, that is episode eight, Premonitions in a Teepee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and please, if you have any interesting insights you would like to share, leave a comment or contact me. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, you can follow the link to the Patreon account in the bio for this episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye for now. Sweet dreams. Om Tat Sat. Jaya Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shriyadeta Radhara Shivasadi Dhoa
Krishna.